again tonight. And as Michael and I, you know, talked going into this, we started having a conversation a while ago. What are we going to do for Lent? And this idea of law and Ten Commandments came up. And we thought if we if we go just right, we could maybe do an overview, two commandments a week, and then we run out of time. So we'll probably record our final session and we'll just put that out for anybody that wants to listen to it. Because I, I mean, we don't plan on meeting Easter evening, um, and so what that that will kind of be our plan going forward. And you would think that the Ten Commandments are familiar enough that you could just jump in, but as we talked about it, we really felt a, a pretty significant need to do an introductory session. Um, if you ask Ten Commandments. You know, a lot of people would know them or most of them. In fact, one of the things we want you to do, give you a, a few seconds here, um, and we didn't get paper, so you'll have to try and this also be a little bit of a memory exercise. I'd, I'd like to ask you to think of the first three Ten Commandments that come to mind. So just, you, you don't have to remember all of them. I'm sure some of you do, but just the first three that sort of come to mind off the top of your head. And then we will, we will go from there. So the Ten Commandments are the best known laws of the Old Testament. There are 613 laws considered laws in the Old Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, there are two places where we're given what we call the Ten Commandments. Uh, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, though never in the text are they called the Ten Commandments. Um, in Deuteronomy, they're called the Ten Words, or the, the Ten Sayings, possibly. Um, but Ten Commandments is a title, a label that we have given them. And interestingly, in the Old Testament, they're never, they're never really singled out as particularly important. Because if you think about that, I mean, on one hand, that's surprising. On the other hand, all of those 613 laws are considered sacred. And, there, and so there's not really the idea that these are our serious laws and these are our laws we're not as serious about. They're, they're all serious. And so the Old Testament doesn't do a lot with the Ten Commandments as the Ten Commandments. That is kind of, um, that has been more of a Christian, I won't call it an invention, but it's been more of a Christian tradition to kind of keep them together and single them out and to give them voice as a separate unit. Uh, though Jewish people, the Jewish faith, they recognize the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. They just haven't done that. They probably don't have posters of them at home and had to memorize them because they are, they are much more incorporated into the bigger law than they are within Christianity. And there's probably a reason for that that we'll touch on in a little bit. Yeah, so I, I'm going to, I'll let you jump into the next section, but just a quick comment to make here. It, Christians have an interesting, I don't want to spoil the thunder here for a couple minutes, but Christians have an interesting position here with the Ten Commandments, because Think of those 613 laws, think across the Old Testament, the ones that you're not keeping today when you didn't consider the type of fabric that you put on your body or the specific food that was in the soups, right? These are things that, that Christians have addressed over time. We have these commandments in the Old Testament. There's a kind of uh, a simplicity to the 10, just numerically, that, that's a thing that we can grasp. It's given to by Moses comes down the mountain and God gives these 10 things. And Christians, for lots of different reasons, have found this a compelling way to move forward. That said, you would think that that would make it easy to categorize even amongst these 10. You'd say, we, we've singled out, we got 613, but the 613 are messy. So we're going to have the 10 that are delivered by Moses. You would think that that would be easy to break down themselves, but there's actually diversities there. Yeah, and having said that, the Ten Commandments, one of the benefits of the Ten Commandments is they're probably the least culturally bound rules that we know. They're sort of universal, right? When the Old Testament tells you if your ox breaks your neighbor's fence, you kind of go, okay. 
But when it says don't kill, you go, oh. So they're less constrained to their time and place than are some of those Old Testament laws. But having said that, um, does anybody is anybody aware? You there might be. Is anybody aware that there are more than one version of the Ten Commandments? Does anybody know there are three? Yeah. So, this may be a little bit hard to see. There are essentially Ten Commandments in three different arrangements based on whether you're Jewish, Catholic, slash Lutheran, or Protestant, some Lutheran, not all Lutheran. So in the Jewish version, they take what we think of as the pref- the preface, I'm the Lord your God who has taken you out of the land of Egypt. By the way, if you know a little bit about Judaism, the G slash D there is a, that is a nod of respect to the Jewish people who won't write the word God. They, they think it's disrespectful to write God's name but even God's title, God. And so G slash D, when you see that, you know you're dealing with a Jewish author. So they, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Where we take that as a preface or an introduction to the commandments, they treat that as the first commandment. And then they go, they skip, or we would say they skip uh, idols. And so they they kind of subsume the commandment number two, no idols. They include that under as a subheading of you shall have no other gods before me. In the Catholic version, if you look down here at nine and 10, they separate the com- the covet commandment into two commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, commandment nine, nor shall you covet your neighbor's goods. And you'll notice that they also follow the Jewish pattern of not having a specific commandment about idols, thinking that that also fits within the the other commandment, you shall not have other gods before me, though they list it first. So they make a, a, they make a spot for a 10th commandment that is a separate covet commandment. The one that you're probably most familiar with, kind of standard Protestant version, we we put idols, graven images, as its own commandment, and we leave covet together as one commandment. What's surprising, I think, about that to people is the idea that this thing we think, the Ten Commandments, we don't even agree with all of Christians, let alone all of Old Testament people, on the order. So it, it's less clear-cut, it, it's less exact, maybe, than we might think. I, I don't think most people, and this isn't, a, this isn't a criticism, I just don't think most people know this. I, I think if you ask people, do you know we had different commandments than the Jews and the Catholics? No, we don't. Well, we, we don't, we just order them. I mean, we don't actually have different commandments, but you wouldn't know their numbers if you start reciting them together. You're not gonna. You're not gonna match up. And I think, you know, that's that's interesting. Um, one one thing that may be helpful. Uh, you. Yeah. So, though we have different ordering here with some of the ways that these have been grouped, there's largely scholarly discussions surrounding the the two movements or what are called the two tables of the commandments and i'm i'm certain at some point you've heard this in a a sunday school class of some sort you will notice that on the front end uh specifically we have commands that relate directly to god and then those commands shift into commandments that deal with neighbor so you have vertical commands and you have horizontal commands uh you don't want to dive into that too deeply and make hard and fast distinctions that 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 these have ways of flowing into each other, but largely the the idea of one, um, the Lord your God, have no other gods, the idea of no graven images, taking the Lord's name in vain, 
uh, the, the Sabbath, the idea of keeping that day holy to God. And, and then you move into the relational commands, the ways that we treat one another, the re- responsibilities that we have to neighbor, that you move down deeper into the list. Now, as Christians, we're, of course, aware when Jesus is asked to summarize the commands, you remember what he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself. We might think of him as summarizing these commands specifically, but Jesus was speaking to an audience who would have been fluent in all 600 commands. So once again, I think there's a bias of us coming to a command text like that because we think of it in terms of the commands that we've grown up with, we're most comfortable with. But when Jesus is talking about our ultimate responsibility to God, he sees all of the commandments, all of them sprinkled throughout the Old Testament as doing that. But we see the groupings themselves here in the Ten Commandments, the two books that we have here. So, in in rough terms, the first four commandments, three commandments if you're Catholic, have to do with, with God, and then the rest have to do with people and community. And within that, there is um, a theory, an argument, maybe a case to be made, that in that second table, so from it on the Protestant list here, uh, from five down, that the commandments are given sort of in order of their impact and danger to a society. Not that one thing is worse than the other necessarily, but that honor your father and mother you know, degrades community very fast. Murder has a drastic impact. Uh, so it it's not to say that covet is the, if you're going to break a commandment, make sure it's covet because that one's at the bottom. It's just to say that there is a theory that they're sort of organized by the the impact they have on other people and the detriment they, they have on society. That's not a, not everybody agrees with that, but it's one of those things just sort of argue about. Now, to come back to this, when you thought of your three commandments, were they in the first table or the second table? Uh, how, okay, how many first? How many second? Okay. When we think of the Ten Commandments, I, I think we often think of the second table. Um the not commandments more so than the, you know, the first ones, well, you shall not make an idol. But we tend to think of the relationship commandments. Uh, they've done some really interesting surveys. I, I, I These things always make me smile. They go out and they tell people, you know, ask people, do you think the Ten Commandments? Yes, I love the Ten Commandments. We should, we should keep them. We should put them everywhere. And then they say, okay, could you name them? And the person goes, uh... Yeah, uh, recycle, you know, and then they just come up with crazy stuff. So we, we tend, we tend to remember the relational side of that, um, at first, uh, generally speaking, I think. Right. I think that we tend to think of the ways in which these instruct our moral behavior. And I think that this is actually an important turn in the conversation. I think the question that I would submit to you as we study the Ten Commandments together is what purpose do they serve in your life? What what value do they offer to your life as a person of faith? I think most of us would at least start off with, they have something to say about what I do, or maybe more pressingly, what I don't do, right? I try not to covet. I try not to take life if that's at all possible. I, I try not to, or I, I don't want to be a person who steals or gives false witness. This idea of guiding a basic morality and, and personal ethic. And that is a, a very historically fair reading of the commandments. We're going to talk about that tonight. But it's a very limited understanding of the commandments. Historically, the church has seen these commandments as far more than just what we as Christians should or shouldn't do. That's a very individual understanding of them. And I think in many ways it detracts from their their deeper meaning. So part of the transition here tonight as we move into the commandments next week 
is going to be to try to answer the question, what should we expect from these commandments in our life? Because if you only expect for this to be some kind of social guide, a thing that every person should do morally, ethically, this is the definition of a personal ethic, then you expect one thing from the commandments. If, on the other hand, you think that this has something to say about a Christian character or about a Christian relationship with God, then this might land differently in our lives. So that's the question I'd love for you to sort of keep in mind tonight is what what value or what purpose of the commandments should we expect to have in our lives? What should the, How should these function? And I think that leads us to some of the ways that we've historically, these commandments have been read. So just as way of background, as we look at the Old Testament and, and we sort through those laws, the categories that we use, we've essentially said we can identify three types of law. And the first is moral law. Laws that sort of reflect God's character, they are directly spoken to the behavior of the people. Um, sometimes this might be called covenant law, but it has to do with our behavior. And, and you could read those laws, so our sexual ethics, laws about justice and fairness, faithfulness. And the Ten Commandments are generally understood as the best summary we have of the moral law. In, in other words, how are we expected to live? What is, what is God's expectation of us in terms of how we behave? And one of the reasons the Ten Commandments, I think, has, has survived so well and thrived over time is because it's such a great summary of that. Don't kill, don't do harm, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet, don't break covenant faithfulness, don't break vows. So uh, generally speaking, um, if you talk to people, I think, about the Ten Commandments, people of faith, and probably especially people outside the faith, they would identify moral law as one of the, the key ways we understand Old Testament law and maybe the way that we understand the Ten Commandments, though there are other uses. So this is one of the uses of law that Protestants in particular are going to struggle with, and that theologically we've addressed them in different ways. But when you read the Old Testament, there are extensive rules about the festival calendar, about different things that you can do in some seasons, things you can't do in other seasons. There are, as I mentioned previous, dietary laws, things that you can eat and, and shouldn't eat. If we had a soup, it would have been, I don't think we had a soup with pork in it tonight, did we? Uh, no. Yes, we did. Good. So if you didn't, if you didn't think a, a whiff about that, then you're not concerned about the dietary laws, right? But if you read the New Testament, remember the arguments that you have in the book of Acts about Peter saying, I've never eaten any of these animals. That wasn't on accident, right? That's because that was a carefully thought through life choice. It wasn't because of some cool diet fad. It was because of a deep connection to the idea of ceremonial law, the idea that to be pure and holy people, one must not profane your body with eating these things which are regulated by the Old Testament scripture. So as as the Christian tradition developed, a lot of the ceremonial law was interpreted as being time-bound, as being connected to God's choosing of the Israelite people. And texts like in Acts show us how the early church wrestled with those ceremonial laws. Paul writes letters to these churches in the New Testament saying, some of you are circumcised and others are not. And I'm telling you, don't, don't do that thing just so that you can be Christian. And that's the early church engaging with the question of ceremonial law. What do we keep in terms of our lived ethic as people of the New Testament seeking to also be people uh, in continuity with the Old Testament? But what things are time-bound and what things are connected to the people of Israel? And we have generally... Christians have generally considered, um, Protestants have almost exclusively considered, that ceremonial laws are now obsolete for Christians. As people of faith, that Jesus, when we say Jesus has abolished the law, we don't mean the moral law. 
we mean the ceremonial law. We don't have to sacrifice at a temple. We, we don't have to, you know, not eat pork or shellfish. We, we, we don't have to do those things. But there are places that are gray. That there's some middle ground that is tough. Like, for instance, keep the Sabbath. There are as many Sabbath laws in the Old Testament as any other topic. And Christians have said, no, if you need to pick up sticks on the Sabbath, you know, okay, that's not a deal breaker. We also moved the Sabbath to Sunday and said, well, we're going to do it on Sunday and yeah, we'll kind of pay attention to it. But so you don't have to keep the laws, but then there are places where Christians have said, you don't have to keep ceremonial laws except on Sunday. Then you better keep them. Don't pick up those sticks. Don't mow your yard. Don't paint your house. And, and so if you, talk, if you talk from a theological standpoint, is Sabbath a moral law or a ceremonial law? It might depend, it might depend who you're talking to. Protestant Christians, our, our branch of Christians have generally said, yeah, we seem seems like a good practice to set aside a day for worship, but we've tried not to be legalistic about it. Other traditions have have been more comfortable leaning into the idea that there are some hard fast rules about ceremonial laws. Then we come to the third section, which we call or is called we don't call it it is called civil, and civil laws are specifically this one gets a little tough. These are society laws, societal laws that pertain to Israel. So these are the things Israel is expected to do in order to retain blessings and to stay faithful as a nation. So these are health codes, inheritance laws, um, idolatry laws, punishments. Now, civil laws, like ceremonial laws, have generally by Protestants, been considered obsolete. Our biggest statement of faith as Presbyterians is the Westminster Confession. Westminster says that civil laws are not binding on Christians anymore. Those Old Testament laws don't apply to us anymore. However, there are those who argue that the expectations of the nation of Israel have been transferred to other nations, either specifically as in our nation or generally as in all nations. And they would argue that civil laws are not a category of laws to themselves, but are a subset of moral laws so that they are binding on people. And that they would argue that we should continue to practice them. And yeah, I'll bore you with theological words. The the label for this is theonomy. Theonomy takes the word God theos and the word nomos, which is law, and puts them together. And theonomy is the idea of a Christian form of government which rules over society by the laws of the Old Testament, or at least by Christian laws. So if you know something of John Calvin trying to transfer Geneva and rule it as a Christian province, that's theonomy. If you, uh, listen, if you ever listen to a politician who says, we ought to be running this whatever country they're talking about, by the laws of God. That's theonomy. Um, sometimes in our day and age, that gets called Christian nationalism, but underneath it is an old idea called theonomy. Um, in, and when we get to Ten Commandment discussions, it's, I think it's helpful to know this. When you run into a discussion and somebody's advocating that we need to stamp the Ten Commandments on courthouses and schools and, and wherever else, they are generally arguing from the perspective that there is a civil component to the law. 
They may or may not be theonomists, but they are arguing theonomy, though they likely don't know that. But the idea is that the commandments are not just good for believers. They are good and should be enforced upon society. Now, that's not an idea that Christians have always advocated, but there have always been some Christians that have advocated it. And so some of our conversations about the Ten Commandments, when they happen outside of the church, often involve some of those aspects. And it, I think it's helpful to understand where they've come from and, and how you get there. You are, if you are ever talking with someone who's telling you we need to use the Ten Commandments in that way, you're, having, you're not having a conversation about probably moral law or ceremonial law. You're having a conversation about how should the civil application of the Ten Commandments be handled. And it, I, I find it helpful to know that because we've been there before. We've, we've thought about that before. That's not new. So in a moment, we're going to transition here to, to how some of our reformed forebears have, have moved forward in that. I just want to make a really quick point to bolster what Clint's saying. I think largely that conversation that he's describing boils down to the question of identity. What do you consider the identity of the Christian church to be in the history of God's people in the world? Because think about the commands that God gave to the people of Israel. That was directly connected to first being led by Moses, and, and you had uh, you know Joshua, and you had that period. And then, you know, that moved into a monarchy. So the people were governed from that royal pattern, which God told them you shouldn't do. And the people demanded that they needed to have. Right. And that brought with it all of its concerns. And then you go into the prophetic period where there wasn't there were good kings, there were bad kings, there were prophets who were saying these things that that you should do, you shouldn't do. Amongst that whole journey, you have to ask yourself, at what point are Christians going to translate the law into our present context, which is radically different from all of those previous contexts, right? So when you think of our modern values of people having a vote, people having protected right to speech, these kinds of things, that's not a one-to-one relationship in the society in which these laws were given and intended to function. So it becomes really messy when Christians argued for theonomy. And, And actually, this happened in the 20th century, Uh, some very prominent Reformed theologians were working on that idea, and they ran up against this problem that they couldn't figure out a consistent way to build a bridge between those realities. How do we not end up just picking and choosing the things that we would like to have as as the rule and actually have some kind of systemic theological bridge between the two? And, And so as that century went on, by the by the end of the 20th century, largely Reformed theological voices came to say that, that we should uphold this idea of the moral law, specifically as we see in the Ten Commandments, and that the, the goal of trying to translate ceremonial and civil laws into our present context looks often more like the person doing the translating than the laws themselves. And, and so Reformed voices became very skeptical of that, and begin to focus very heavily on the moral law itself. What what can we learn from it? And there, that actually goes quite deep in the conversation. Yeah, and so I, I think one way to think of this is, yes, if we look at the laws, there is some wisdom, that there's good practical advice, but the law itself in the faith was always understood to be more than that. It was always understood to be conditions of covenant. So when we now come and pick laws and say, well, this one's good, we should still keep doing it because it's good for society, we are doing something, we're, we're coming from an angle that the original law wasn't meant to do. And, and we, just have to, we just have to confess, we just have to admit that we're doing that. It, it, certainly there are commandments, there are good ideas for society, but that's not at heart what they represented to people of faith. So let me stop there for a minute uh, before we get into this next section. Let me just stop and ask if there are comments, questions. Is there something that hasn't made sense? Is there something 
you want more information on. Okay. There is a man named John Calvin. Um, pretty important to us. John Calvin comes along. He thinks uh, long and hard about the law. Before John Calvin, general rule was there were two uses of the law. Now, we have to make a shift here. We're no longer talking about types of the law. We've changed the heading, uses of the law. And when we talk about which law we're using, we're exclusively talking about the moral law. So the laws that are binding on people of faith, the, the laws that are an expression of covenant behavior, that there are three ways that they can be used. In other words, Christians had to struggle with, do we need the law? On this side of the cross, do we need the law? Can't we just follow Jesus? Do we still need rules? We know that the rules don't save us. So what is the place of law in the Christian worldview? And as Calvin applied himself to this, he came up with three categories, two of which were well-established and one that he kind of, uh, is it fair to say he invented it? I, I mean, certainly he gave it voice. So the first use is one we would call, and again, sorry about the word, pedagogical means teaching. It's the teaching aspect of the law. So what does the law teach us? The law teaches us what is right. Except for Calvin, what the law teaches us is that we are sinful. In other words, Calvin said that the best, the first thing the law does is convict us of our sin. We see, do not, and we admit, oh, I've done that. We see, you know, thou shall, and we say, oh, yeah, I haven't done that. We hear, you know, love your neighbor and all those, we hear those moral expectations God has, and we have to confess that we have not met them. And this for Calvin is the first use of the law. When we examine the law, it forces us to admit that we fall short. The law shows us, therefore, the depth of our sin, kind of a mirror in which we see the real story about ourselves, and we have to admit that we're broken. And Calvin says that that's the law's intent to bring us to a place where we're ready to confess that we need a Savior. We need deliverance. We cannot help ourselves because we can't follow the law. Um, this, this series that we started this morning in Romans, if, if you want to dig deep into what Paul thinks of the law and its place, that's the place to turn. But Calvin says the first use of the law is to teach us that we are sinful. And so that, that one's out there and well-established. Yeah, the next one could be a little tricky. He talks about the political use of the law, and maybe political is not a helpful word for us with our understanding of that. But Calvin understood that the church always lives with human relationships. And so what he meant by political was the human community, and his ideal was that the law not only convicts us of what's true, we're sinful, we can't meet the bar that the law sets, but also we need the law to help set ground rules to protect the communities in which we live. So the commandments then become for us an organizing structure so that people within the Christian community can be protected. And that, that because Calvin lived with his project in Geneva and other things like that, he, he generally thought not that the law here should be outsourced and embedded in uh, like that a, a king of Germany could take this and turn this into a, a, a sort of civil religion. He meant the idea that whenever a wise ruler turned to the commandments, they would find something of value for their people. That in general, the commandments do have moral wisdom that if used well by by civil authorities, that that could have positive impact in the protection of people and communities. Yeah, essentially that the law formed a guide for those who ruled. I'm doing the next one. All right. So let's talk about the normative use of the law. This is uh, really, really interesting, I think. So this is where um, Calvin is striking out 
and he's doing something new. He, he's giving us a new perspective of the law, or at least uh, he's giving voice to it. And this is not a general use. When, when, when Calvin talks about the normative use of the law, he's talking about the Christian reception and Christian use of the law. And here, the idea is that the law is not negated in Jesus Christ. It's not wiped out, but it still matters. And the idea is that after faith, the law not only shows us the bar that we can't hit, but it's transformed into the life model that we seek to live in. It becomes a road. The, the law becomes the path that Christians take that leads us closer and closer to Christ's life perfection in our life. And so it paints us a picture. It gives us an image. If you're going to be more like Jesus at the end of your life than when you began, what will it look like? Like the law. It'll look, it'll look like the, the sort of pattern of the Ten Commandments. And you might be surprised by this, actually, because if you know Calvin and you know Reformed theology, you know he makes the case very strongly, the law does not save you. You don't get to do works and get on the other side. But what he does say is, by the grace of Christ, when you find yourself on the other side, now the law is suddenly your guide and your and a resource. It becomes for you a pathway to deeper discipleship. And the ordering matters, but it becomes a normative or a uh, uh, what we mean by that, it, it becomes a pattern by which we are called as Christians to live our life. One scholar, I think, said something helpful, that in Christ, the commandments become descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, they're not just the ruler that measures whether we're being faithful. They're a picture of what being faithful means. And, and Calvin said only Christians can use the law this way. You have to be in the covenant of grace in order to understand the rules this way, um, that, that they become what the forgiven life looks like. And this is a thoroughly Presbyterian idea. I, I mean, there are, we're not the only ones who hold it, but this is deeply embedded into who we are as faith people. This dramatically informs us of how we think of the commandments. And it does so in a couple of ways. If you, you, if you know your Bible a little bit, if you know your New Testament, you'll know that Jesus quotes a couple of the Ten Commandments. But when he does, he says, you heard this, but I tell you this. And in every case, he adds to the commandment. He takes the original commandment, don't murder, and he makes it, don't be angry. And he takes the original commandment, don't commit adultery, and he makes it, don't have lust. So when Jesus brings the commandments to us, he, he brings them, he makes them harder. So it's not just then about the check mark. It, it is about the goal. Um, don't, don't step over the idea. So in other words, we find in this third use of the law that the law is far bigger than the simple statement of it, right? That we can't just say, yes or no, I've done that. Oh, I've, I've never made an idol. Don't make for yourself an idol. Check. Not once have I ever gone out and carved an idol. But have I been guilty of idolatry? Yes, over and over and over. And so it doesn't make the law easier for Christians. It shows us a deeper picture of what the law means. And, and our confession, Westminster Confession, which we'll use quite a bit in this study, does a nice job with this. If you know the Westminster Confession at all, in the, each of the, it lists a commandment and then it gives you a paragraph or more of what the commandment means. Like, for instance, do not steal turns into don't charge interest when you loan people things. Don't grumble when somebody borrows. I mean, it, it, all this stuff that they attach to and making it impossible for us to say, I don't steal stuff. Well, depends what definition you're using, perhaps. And so this idea is, um, 
I, I think really, really helpful in Calvinism. John Calvin, he, he, he just changes. He just reinvents how Christians think about what it means that we have laws. So this gets really, really, really practical. The law can be held by two different people and have two entirely different outcomes. And to illustrate this, I want to ask a question. Uh, have any of you, uh, we have people here who, who I think may be of the age that you had this experience. Did anyone here uh, get in trouble at school and uh, have a ruler used on you? Not Can- a- I'm not answering. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so the ruler in that context was used as a thing, a sharp rebuke, right? You did something wrong, and you were struck by the ruler. That is one way to look at the law, that the law is a punitive force. It's used against us. It shows us that we are not only wrong, but it is applied against us to commit that wrong to us. We are found in our sinfulness, and that's the end. Another way to look at the law as a ruler is that it's the thing that you aspire to measure against. Did any of you, as your kids got older, mark on the door frames of your house as they got older? A child looks at that as a positive step forward as they grow, as they continue to mature as a person. Both of those could be your understanding of the law. You could understand the law as a thing that points out at others and said, thus saith the Lord, Helen Ham. Uh, hell and damnation, or you could understand the law to be understood as a tool that helps guide one and inspire one to greater life and faith. And that's why I asked you the question is, how does law function? Because that's the question we're going to have to wrestle with as we go throughout the commandments. If you think of it as the ruler used as a punitive judgment, then you will tend to think of the law as a, a long list of check boxes that either you can tick or you can't, right? And then you might think to yourself, well, I haven't committed adultery for a full decade. I'm doing great, right? Or you might think that the law is calling you to be a person of personal sexual purity, which is something that you're called to each and every day. In one case, it might be a thing you're avoiding. And in another, it might be a thing that's calling you forward. And that's a lot of words let me summarize this like I do for whenever whenever I explain this to our confirmation students. I always, the way I talked about the law with them was that the law is for us a kind of uh, boundary on the road. If you've ever drove through the mountains and you've driven on one of those roads that has no guardrail, I don't know about you, my heart jumps through my chest as I'm trying to like, you know, drive the closest thing to the cliff as possible. The law is a beautiful gift when you know that it's there providing boundaries in your life. When you know, like we have at the Spirit Lake Elementary School, we don't let our kindergarten kids play on the playground with no fence next to Hill Avenue. That would be insane, right? What we do is we as Christians have this beautiful gift of the law given to us, which both reminds us of our brokenness, and gives us a ruler that can inspire us to live the most whole human life possible. But the only way we can receive that is we, if we come to the law with the humility to say, number one, that it's for us, as in people of faith, that, that this has something to say with people on the other side of grace. And then the alternate part of that is the expectation that the law should make us more Jesus-like and less selfish-like which as Christians have gone through time, specifically, I think, in some of our more recent conversations about the law, some of the people most passionately arguing for the Ten Commandments have been arguing for them to be standing as judgment against rather than an inspiration for faith to move forward. And, and, and so that's not to say there's not a place for both of those. I think there, there is a conversation to be had there. But it's to say what you bring to the conversation and an expectation is likely what you're going to get out of it. I think it's worth setting our minds toward that as we move into the specific commandments in the future. And so the reason we go through all this background is that 
in the next coming weeks, we're going to unpack the commandments. We'll try to do two a week and we'll just work in order. So the first two weeks will be in that first table, the, the first four commandments. And we are going to almost exclusively think about the Ten Commandments from this idea of the moral law and Calvin's third use or normative use of the law. When there are civil considerations or considerations outside of the church, we'll try to do some history. We'll try to have, we'll touch on those conversations. But our primary focus is what do the, what do these laws, these commandments say to people of faith to guide their faith? And we will do our best, guided by our tradition, to expand the laws to hear the full scope of what they offer us as we move forward and the path they set for us. It's not that the law doesn't have some general purpose. It does. But it's our covenant law within our covenant faith, and that's where we're going to spend the vast majority of our time, to understand how that law expands and what it calls us to in the largest sense. one of the great gifts that, that Reformed thinkers have given the church, I think, is this idea that the laws are more than laws. They are invitations to be covenant people. They are not just simply rules. They are a path toward Christian character. And if if we come out of the Ten Commandments and we can re- recite them, but we don't understand what they call us to, th- then I'd say we've largely missed our opportunity. So it, I, I know this is probably not the most interesting stuff you've ever heard, but I, I want you to understand why we go the way that we do and how I think our tradition helps us get there. So that's what we'll be up to in the next several weeks. I'll be really, really, really brief with this, but we really, I want to make sure that we we pull out that point that Clint just made, is that for many of us, the law was a thing that we learned as children that stood over us as a thing that we, we, we wanted generally to be moral people. No one wakes up wanting to be an evil person, right? And so when we... What? I was just reflecting on the differences in our childhood. Some of us looked at law because we want to know exactly where the line was and know when we got really close to it. But yeah, I'm sure your way is good too. Some. Some of us don't wake up wondering how far we can push it. No. um, The point I want to make is, is very simple, that the law for us can be a beautiful symbol of belonging. And I'm sure in every one of your families, you have those symbols, whether you have thought of them or not. Like, for instance, when you're watching the Super Bowl game, which team you can root for and the team you can't. Or the rules that you had for your kids that your kids came home from school said, well, my friends don't have to do that. You said, well, they got the better parents or whatever it was, right? We have these things as Christians as gifts. Well, we've been given these community boundaries. We've been given these laws that show us what it looks like to live in the family. And that's the beautiful gift of having been given them. So the question as we move forward then is, do we think of the law as a thing that stands over us seeking to judge us, to strike us with the ruler? Or instead, do we think of the law as an opportunity today to be more and more like Jesus? Do you understand it to be an invitation calling you deeper into Christian community? Because if that's the way that the law functions in this idea of the normative use, then the law can become for you an actual source of spiritual invitation and joy as opposed to a chore. Instead of you wondering, is God looking over, ready to, or ready to bring wrath down upon this thing that I did wrong, the question is, can I today be more gracious? Can I be more giving? Which is the antithesis to the law, don't steal. 
right? It, it can the law can actually turn and become an invitation. And I, I think that as we turn to it that way, it both changes its its tone. It also makes it a thing that we can incorporate into our our daily relationship with God, as opposed to sort of this learn at once and try not to forget it type idea. Yeah, I, I think essentially pre-Christ, the law is a club. Post-Christ, the law is a map. So, so where does it where does it lead us? And that's what we'll that's what we'll wrestle with. Comments, questions, thoughts. We'll do our best to make this um, this study opportunities for discussion. Um, I, again, sorry, a lot of lecturing tonight, a lot of church stuff, some history, but we we felt like that was where we needed to start to move on. So thank you for hanging in there with us. Uh, thanks again, food people. The sign up for next week is is over on the the shelf, and also I believe Megan has posted it online. So whichever way you're comfortable signing up, if you can help us next week with food, that is uh, deeply appreciated. Thank you all for your time, and have a great week. Hey, we want to thank you for listening to this broadcast. We're grateful for the support and the connections, the relationships we get to make through some of these offerings. We hope that they've been helpful. We know that there are lots of choices that you have, lots of things you can listen to. We want to make you aware of some of what we're doing, and we greatly appreciate you being a part of it. Absolutely. We want to just thank you for being one of our audio podcast listeners. It's amazing to have you with us in the midst of our conversations. Of course, I hope you know that you can find the whole archive of all of these conversations at pastortalk.co. We would love for you to join us there. You can find options for subscribing by email. You can easily share things there with other people who you think might appreciate uh, recordings like this. And of course, we just want to welcome you. If you're ever interested in joining us for the video podcast, you can do that on YouTube. It is youtube.com slash FPC Spirit Lake. There you can comment and engage with us. Or if you would prefer to do that uh, without going to YouTube, you can actually just click the link in the description of this podcast where you will be able to send us a form and information and, and reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you and engage in conversation with you. Thanks again for taking time to be with us. We look forward to our next conversation and can't wait to see you then.